Hello and welcome to my podcast, Whisper in the Shadows, the true story of a real-life undercover cop. I'm Michael Bates and I was a police officer 15 years in one of Australia's state police. For just over two years of that time, I was also an undercover cop. In this podcast are my true stories, what it's really like to be the UC. Well, rather, I was Michael Bates. Sorry, Michael isn't actually my real name, but my covert identity that I used on most of my operations. Now, everyone has a notion of what undercover policing is all about, and they call them different things. Whether it's a narc, covert operative, dog, or even a UC, most people seem to confuse plainclothes police with being undercover. Now, there actually is a very big difference. Most plainclothes police are detectives, and they simply just don't wear a uniform, so they aren't as obtrusive in public. Undercover is completely different. You take on characteristics, the life, the story of being a criminal. So let's get on with the podcast. So, as I have already said, uh, Michael is not my real name. It is the COVID identity I, I used. There was a reason why I picked the name Michael Bates. Um, when you are working undercover, you, you, the last thing you want to do is have someone call out a name that doesn't mean anything to you and that you don't tweak is being, you know, leveled towards you. So... At the time that I was doing this, my um, my then fiance had been dating uh, a real clown whose name was Michael, um, and uh, that name stuck in my head. Um, and I knew if anyone called out Michael, I would automatically turn around and have a look to see if it was this particular guy. Which means that I was fairly confident that if I turned around, um, I would be, uh, if the name was called, I would be able to turn around and and sort of say, yep, what do you want? Uh, as soon as it clicks in that they're actually talking to me. So that's the main thing. You have to use a name. Obviously, you can't use your real name because if the people you're dealing with find out who you are uh, and they know your real name, it's not very hard to find out where you live. Once they find out where you live, they can do horrible things to you and your uh, family. So... I use the name Michael because it is a name that, 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 you know, I had an affinity with. I knew that I would recognize and bang, there you go. So there have been many movies and TV shows about undercover policing, some real, some made up. In Australia, we've had uh, the TV show Stingers, which started somewhat realistic, but then became rather fanciful and, and was more your typical boy meets girl type drama. Two movies that stand out to me um, from that time are Reservoir Dogs and Donnie Brasco. Obviously, the first is fiction and the second is based on true events, you know, infiltrating the mafia and bringing the mafia down. The truth is that, though, that some of the things that happen when you work on the cover are more unbelievable than the fiction Reservoir Dogs. Being a UC is a lot like being an actor. You are playing the part to convince someone, usually a criminal, that you are another criminal and definitely not a police officer. To that point, 
when I'll come back to the covert um, operatives course that we did, um, but as part of that that course, we watched Reservoir Dogs as sort of a training film. Now, if you don't know much about Reservoir Dogs, it's about a covert operative or an undercover police officer who infiltrates a diamond um, robbery crew. During the film, there is a part in the show, there is a part in the movie which shows just how involved a backstory needs to be for a UC. It's sort of told in a bit of a flashback back between Tim Ross' character, Mr. Orange, and his handler, Detective Holloway. Now, part of Orange's backstory is that he's a small-time weed dealer. So, Holloway sells him on becoming an actor. He's got to play the role, and everybody's got to be able to believe it. Part of the role is mesmerizing the story that, uh, you know, of being a small-time weed, weed dealer and fashioning it then to be part of, uh, be believable as his own story. And, and, you know, one thing they always say is that behind every good lie is a little bit of truth. If you can, if you can weave truth into a, into a lie or a story, you're less likely to get found out, one, uh, one and two, you're more likely to believe it yourself and, and, and go on with it. So he added little tidbits of his own life to make the story more lived in, more believable. Story being something he actually tells um, to the crew of colours, and if you know the movie, there's Mr. White, Mr. Pink, Mr. Red, Mr. Brown, um, to convince them that he's the real thing. It's a harmless little popular story told with unbelievable panache, he should be able to tell it, and he practiced it enough. So by the time we get to this flashback where Orange tells the story to Mr. White, Mr. Pink, and Nice Guy Eddie in a strip club, he's got them all in the palm of his hand. So the story centers around a chance encounter in a bathroom with three sheriff's deputies and their drug-sniffing dog. Mr. Orange is carrying a bag full of weed. So in the story, Mr. Orange is in the bathroom taking a leak with his bowling ball bag of weed. He goes to wash his hands, and there's these three cops talking shot by the sinks. The dog starts to bark at Orange, and in the flashback, he's playing it real cool. He walks up, he washes his hands, goes to the hand dryer, and being such a cool MF, he leaves the bag of weed on one of the sinks, as if to say to the cops, I got nothing to hide. In the flashback, Orange is relating to his new criminal friends how scared he really is of those really lame cops, and they're frothing at the mouth dog. The interesting thing here is that the story Mr. Orange and Holloway spend so much time on perfecting is pivotal telling. Everything for Mr. Orange and his, this undercover operation hinges on this crew believing that story. Not just this bathroom story, but his whole story in general. But it's this story that puts him over the fence into the backyard of their criminal world. It's this story that they all want to hear. The funny thing is I've actually used that story or elements of it at least twice in two separate meetings with targets. I remember I was always asked by friends, wasn't I scared working undercover because it's so dangerous? What happened to the find out you're a cop? Look, truthfully, there were times when I was scared, like my very first buy bust. I was literally shitting myself. But which is more dangerous? Pretending to not be a copper and hopefully not getting found out, after all, that is the job description, or sitting in a marked police car wearing a distinctive uniform being able to be seen from miles away. For me, the second has a bigger target on it, usually from someone or something that you don't see coming. So how did I become a covert operative, I hear you ask? And if you didn't, I'll probably still tell you, because that's the point of the podcast. 
and I know you really want to know. When I left school, I went to uni where I studied psychology and drama. Plan was that if I didn't become a famous actor, then I would be a drama teacher. I didn't grow up wanting to be a policeman and being an undercover copper was the furthest thing from my mind. Whilst I was at uni, I lived in one of those he died with falafel in his hand-typed student share houses, and one of my friends, a friend, was a copper. I remember being out at the academy one day, and uh, we were talking about, you know, how he'd gone through. Funny story about him was that he was as blind as a bat, but he knew that if uh, the shit hit the fan, he wasn't to shoot anything wearing blue. That was very comforting. Anyway, I remember telling him that there was no way in hell you would ever get me out there doing something like being a copper. Funny thing is, less than three months later, I was standing there being welcomed by a police commissioner. I wasn't even 21. So, having been a copper for about four years, I was working in a real high crime area. One night, letting off some steam, I was out in the city with a group of friends, my brother, his mates, and my then fiancé. As usually happens when you get a bunch of young guys out in the turks, fight with your fiancé and a very protective brother, the night ended abruptly with me forced to find my own way home slightly under the weather. Being a good little copper, I decided to get a taxi home and jumped in the first available one. The driver was a youngish guy, maybe late 20s, a bit scruffy, but other than that, sober and nondescript. Gave him my address and slumped back into the front street, leaving out a big sigh. He asked me if I had a big night, which I gave him the abbreviated story of drinking a bit too much, having another fight with the missus, almost getting kicked out of the nightclub trying to stop some guy fighting my brother, and not earning enough money for this crap. He just nodded uh, and uh, sort of said, yep, I hear you. Anyway, a little further into the drive, he piped up a question about whether I wanted something to make me feel better. Thinking to myself, mate, I'm a copper. What the F do you mean? I said, what do you mean, mate? He proceeded to tell me that uh, he can get me some dope or some whiz, which is speed, or even some ease, which is ecstasy, if I wanted to feel better. So I thought to myself, all right, I'll play your stupid game. And I asked him how much and when I could get it, etc., etc. He basically told me he could get me anything I wanted, whenever I wanted. I just needed to call him. As we were nearly home and my mind was working, and over time, I got him to drop me at the corner of my street. You've got to remember, this was early 90s. Back then, there was no Google Maps, there was no mobile phones, um, and the realistically, the only way to get to a place with a taxi was to give the taxi driver directions. Anyway, he wrote down his name and his number on a card, gave it to me, and uh, I said I'd give him a call if I decided I wanted anything, and he drove off. So I'd sobered up a bit by this stage, and I was walking back to my house which, because it was bloody cold in winter, um, sobered me up even more. But he's put the card with his name and number on my badge uh, on my bedside table, went to bed and went to sleep. Next morning when I woke up, well, actually, let's be fair, the next afternoon, I looked at his card and replayed the events from the night before. I decided to give the local CIB a call and tell them about it, which I did, giving them all my details of where I worked, etc., and look, they didn't seem too interested. Anyway, a few days later, I was at the station and I got a call. It was a detective from the state drug squad and he wanted to ask me about the information I called in. It seems that the first detective was wanting a transfer to the drug squad, so he uh, passed that information on. We had a bit of a conversation. I told him of all the details, the guy's name, his taxi number, also his contact number, which again, remember, not a mobile phone, 
landline because mobile phones were only just invented back then. It was a short call and look, that was that, or so I thought. A couple of weeks later, I get called into the station sergeant's office where I was working and he proceeds to ask me if I wanted to help out the drug squad with an operation they were running on the information I'd given them. Look, he wasn't too happy about letting me spend uh, a shift or two with them, but I jumped at the chance without really knowing what they wanted me to do, but it got me out of uniform and got me out of the area. So I had a couple of calls with the drug squad and a meeting in headquarters, and it became very clear they wanted me to do a buy-bust. Okay, so a buy-bust. That's where you organise to buy drugs and uh, from someone, and at the point of handing over the drugs, the person dealing is arrested by the police who are close by watching the whole thing. So thinking I'd be putting my acting skills to use, I said, yeah, sure, without hesitation. Not really knowing what it was I was going to do or what it was I was supposed to do. From the drug squad office, I gave the taxi driver a call, dogged his memory on who I was and uh, how he'd uh, given me his name and details and I'd end up with him. Told him I was having a party that weekend and asked him if I, he could hook me up. He actually said he remembered me and whether he did or not, I really don't know. It's like he probably gave his number out to a lot of prospective clients. He was a taxi driver, of course, and uh, ready-made market back then. Anyway, I uh, asked him about uh, whether he could get me some uh, ecstasy and he said he could, um, but he'd need a few hours. Set up a time and a place to meet. And by that, I, you know, we'd already set, I'd already been told, you know, Let's do it here. It's got good advantage, all that sort of stuff. Um, so I said, look, I'm going to be there. Come and meet me in this park. He said, yep, not a problem. I know what it is. That's close to where I am, which was good. And um, we agreed that uh, I'd meet him at about 7 o'clock the next night. Now, this was, a, 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 this was the early 90s, and there were no mobile phones, as I said, um, only landlines. That made recording the call rather difficult but nonetheless i was able to do it without breaking any laws so the next night came and i dressed in my best non-cop clothes it's actually a sad fact that once you become a copper you become stereotypical in how you dress how you act how you walk and how you look so i tried to look like an everyman at best or a uni student at worst back at the drug squad office i was introduced to two surveillance guys who went through the setup of how they were going to watch me how they were going to record the whole thing, how I was going to record the conversation, what I needed to do before or after, all those sorts of things. They gave me this little tape recorder that was probably slightly bigger than a matchbox. Now, typically it recorded for 30 minutes, uh, sorry, for 60 minutes, with 30 minutes on one side before it clicks, clicks over, and then 30 minutes on the other side. The suggestion was, put the recorder down my pants into my jocks, wrestle right beside my balls. Now, again... This was the early 90s, and there was no such thing as intimate grooming. It was still a very hirsute time of life. To be perfectly honest, thank God for that, because that little sucker got really, really hot after about 15 minutes. After about 35 minutes, it literally burnt my balls. I can only imagine if it was 10 years later, and uh, intimate grooming or shaving was commonplace, I probably would have had third-degree burns down there. All right, so time is getting closer. I feel like I'm walking around with something shoved down my jocks, which, of course, I am, but I feel like everyone can see that I am by how I'm walking very uncomfortably. I get dropped off at the train stop before park where I was meeting uh, the target, 
and I catch the, the train from there to the next station up and, and onto the park. Um, the drug squad detective who was my handler, my controller, uh, also makes his way there in another car um, along with the surveillance who are going to be recording that whole transaction. So I get off at the station and I walk up to the park we agreed to meet at. At this stage, I'm doing what we call the five cent, 50 cent shuffle. I was absolutely scared to death. Thinking to myself, this wasn't a good idea. He's going to know I'm a copper and a whole bunch of other unhelpful thoughts. Anyway, as I get near the park, hand goes down the pants and I turn on the recorder. Now, look, as well as getting hot, I can feel the machine whirring, which made me even more paranoid. Probably couldn't hear it, but it felt like I could hear it. Now, look, it's a five-minute walk to the taxi rank where I'm meeting you. It's important to remember these timings because I only have an hour of tape, and at 30 minutes, the tape changes sides. So, waddle up to the park. When I look back at the video, I was actually walking normally, but in that moment, with that recording device, it felt like I was waddling exaggeratedly like a duck. Anyway, sitting on a bench and waiting for about another 10 minutes in the park for him to turn up. He does, and I jump in the front seat of the car, and I feel like I'm acting extremely nervous. I'm sure I was sweating profusely, but he didn't seem to notice. He goes on and tells me he had a fare that went further than he expected, which was why he's late. So a bit more small talk for another five or ten minutes, what I've been doing, about the party that was coming up, all those sorts of things about what he'd be doing, how it was good for him to be dealing and driving. It's... Then we start to get to business. Now, bear in mind that that tape has been recording for about 25 minutes. So I ask him how good the E's are, and he says to me, look, they're really good. I ask him where he gets them from, and he says he isn't going to give a dealer up. Try to negotiate the price, have a little bit backwards and forwards, and in the end he says no. Um, and right when I finish asking that question, the 30 minutes is up. Now, here's the funny thing. When you're in a high-stress situation, all of your senses heighten. I had a very hot and uncomfortable crotch. I could feel the whirring and was sure he could actually hear it. At the precise moment it got to the 30 minutes, the recorder clicked over to the other side of the tape. It happened right in the dead spot of me asking for a better deal and him thinking. So there was no noise at all. Even the radio seemed quiet. I felt it and to this day, I am sure that I froze. I thought, bugger me, that was loud. He must have heard that. How do I get out of here without, he without getting killed? And in what felt like an hour, but in reality was about five seconds, he continued the deal saying the price was the price and not to waste his time. He would do better deals if this was. Okay, so quickly, quickly snapping back into reality. I agreed and asked him for the pills. I wanted to get out there. Here is the really important thing that you get taught as a covert operative. If you are doing a buy-bust, try and not give the money away before the bust part. Reason is it makes it hard for the government to claw it back from the said dealer in court unless the money has been marked or recorded, which this money wasn't. There was a little bit of toing and froing and me saying I didn't know him, I didn't want to get ripped off, I was worried that he was going to take the money and run and not give me the drugs. He eventually gets out of the car, goes to the boot, and comes back to the car with the package. Obviously, the surveillance team can see this and see what it is, and he hands it to me, and at that precise moment, two unmarked 
cars appear out of nowhere. The detectives jump out and grab both of us, and his last words to me were, don't tell them anything. I get handcuffed and put in the back of one of the cars, um, and after searching his taxi and all the other official things that need to be done, he was driven off in the other car. Obviously, I was then released, turned off the tape, tried to cool down my hot balls, and it was happy days. I actually didn't sleep that night until way late in the morning as my adrenaline was really, really running high. So, a few days later, I got a call at work from the drug squad detective who told me that old mate had been charged with possession and supply. Now, luckily for him, he agreed to be an informant and he gave up his dealer uh, where he got his drugs from, which meant no jail time. Um, and I suspected that they were going to run, run an operation um, on his information and his contacts and use him as the informant. So that wasn't a bad first introduction into covert operations or undercover policing, but for me, it was what I thought was just a one-off. That is until I got an email from the same drug squad detective inviting me to apply for the covert operatives course. So feeling a bit chuffed to be asked and 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 wanted, I duly applied. Part of the application was an interview and then a full day of sight tests, which ironically showed that most undercover cops have the same personality profile as a psychopath. That means they have the ability to be charming and convincing, but police have a very strong sense of justice, very high IQ, strong sense of right and wrong, and uh, a strong sense of empathy. My application was accepted and I was slated to do the course, which was four weeks. I did find it a bit ironic that a course where we were being taught how to pretend to not be police officers was being conducted, was being conducted at the police academy. During the course, we got to spend time with current UCs, past UCs, and we were taught trade craft, craft, sorry, trade craft, as well as the obligatory war stories of what we can and what not to do. Now, after passing the course, and that again, that was four weeks. After passing the course, I went back to general duties, which is uniform policing, waiting for a spot to come up. I just turned 25 when I started my undercover career. I got the call up at the start of the year um, to say there was going to be a spot. Um, the World Police and Fire Games were on in Melbourne, and I went to that um, to compete in sailing of all things and uh, actually broke my ankle. And that was four weeks before I was due to start. I spent six weeks in a cast after having a fairly significant operation. Luckily, I was on light duties, so I didn't have to wear a uniform and I could start growing my long hair and go to beard. Anyway, eventually got my cast off, was able to walk after having some physiotherapy, and uh, my first real job came along. That is a story for the next episode. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Whisper in the Shadows, the true stories of a real-life undercover cop. I look forward to talking to you again next week. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. If you're an ex-covert or undercover police officer or law enforcement, I would love to hear from you and chat about your stories. My contact details can be found on my podcast website.